Okay. Today's Bible reading is from, what did I put in? Luke, tw- uh, sorry, Luke 1, 26 to 38. It's one you have probably heard a few times before. No, that is incorrect. What did I tell you? I may have put the wrong one in, I'm just looking. I did, oh, hold on. No, I did, that's correct, sorry, my mistake. The the mention of Elizabeth threw me off. Okay, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. All right, so last week we talked about Elizabeth. Next week we've got Anna. Today we get to talk about Mary, and I have to say, this might be a little stereotypical, but I think she's one of my favourite characters in the Bible. But the reasons for that might not be what you think. So, uh, we'll get started. I grew up on a a very healthy diet of Disney movies. I'm talking about the original Disney movies, not these remakes that all the kids are getting these days. I watched The Real Lion King. I watched The Real Little Mermaid, the original Little Mermaid. I know what's supposed to happen in those movies. I know the real truth. Except when I was a teenager, I found a book of fairy fairy tales in the library And I thought, oh, cool, it's got The Little Mermaid. I remember that movie from when I was a kid. I'll get it. It's by this guy, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, um, Hans Christian Andersen. He actually wrote the original Little Mermaid, you know, the the Disney movie, right? And so I started reading. And oh boy, that was a rude awakening. You probably all know the, the general gist of the story. There's a mermaid, she's swimming on the surface of the sea, she sees a prince, she thinks he's pretty good-looking, falls in love with him, goes to a very sketchy witch and exchanges her voice for some legs, goes, meets the prince, somehow manages to move in and live in the palace, that bit I don't understand, falls in love with him, they get married, her father and sisters approve, they're kind of bobbing on the water at the wedding, it's beautiful, isn't it? And so imagine my horror when I read this story and it gets to the part where she's exchanging her voice for legs and she's signing the contract with this very sketchy witch lady who lives in a very far-off, dangerous part of the ocean. And the witch says, 
if you choose to do this, the potion that you drink to give you your legs will feel like someone is stabbing a sword through your body. And every step you take with those legs that you desire will feel like you are walking on sharp knives. And I went, hang on a second. I don't remember that in the Disney movie. <laughs> Are we sure this is the original? <laughs> yes, it was. And it gets worse from there. Uh, it is <laughs> questionable. Uh, I actually would recommend you read it. It's a very well-written fairy tale, if not truly horrifying most of the way through. That realization that I had was an unpleasant feeling because I was pretty sure that I knew the truth about The Little Mermaid. I'm pretty sure, I was pretty sure I knew that story, and from that and from the intense round of Googling that I did after that to check what was going on here, I discovered that actually most of those original Disney movies that I loved were not original, and the, the truth behind them was not pleasant. And stories like Cinderella and Snow White have been tainted for me forever, but I actually really love reading those original versions now because I think we get something different from them, and, and the truth is a powerful thing, and I love reading the real original fairy tales. I think sometimes we do this with Mary as well, so I'm going to start by asking you all a question. I want you all to call out a few things we know or we think we know about Mary. What was Mary like? Young, yep. Righteous, that's a good word. Truthful, okay. A virgin. She was a virgin. Any, any, anyone else? It's okay if you can't think of a specific Bible verse. What, what do you feel has been portrayed to us about Mary? Obedient. Obedient. Thank you, Alice. Blessed. I think we can all agree that she probably was blessed. Yep. Strong faith. Strong faith. I'm going to talk about that one today. Can anyone think of any uh, classical paintings or artworks they've seen of Mary? Beautiful. She was radiant. She was glowing, wasn't she? In all of the paintings from the Middle Ages, which are famously very accurate. Right? She, she does this a lot. And if she's not doing this, it's because she's holding a baby. Right? She was meek and mild, very humble, obedient. That's what we've been taught about Mary. I actually don't think that's what the Bible says about Mary. So I've actually picked out two passages today, the one that I just read out and another one that I'm going to read out about halfway through. And the first one, I think we're going to see some hints of Mary's character. And these are little things that are pretty easy to gloss over if you're reading it and you have this idea of meek, mild, humble, radiant Mary in your head but they are big clues about who she is. And we see little moments like this scattered throughout her life because the Gospels are the story of Jesus and every now and then his mum pops up and she says or does something and we kind of just read it and we go, hmm, yes, Mary, wonderful. But she does so many things that are clues about who she was and what kind of a person she was and we see some of those in the passage that I read out. So we'll start with that. And then I'm going to read a second passage that I think tells us very clearly exactly who she is. And it's a passage that I don't think, just looking around, I don't think anyone in this room will ever truly understand this passage in the way that some other people in the world get to. 
So I hope that makes you want to stick around and listen, I guess. So in this first passage, first thing that actually happens is that an angel appears to Mary. If you've ever uh, read through all of the different elements, I guess, all the different chapters of the Christmas stories in the Bible, you'll know that angels appear in a few of them, right? It's kind of a big feature of the Christmas story. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but there's a real pattern to angel encounters. We saw it very clearly with Zechariah last week. What happens? He's there in the temple doing his work, just going about his business. Angel appears. Zechariah is terrified. And the angel says, do not be afraid, your prayer has been heard which is a pretty epic way to start a speech, right? Walk into a room, hey everyone, don't be afraid. If you flick back to Matthew chapter 1, where we see the angel appear to Joseph, now this is a slightly different encounter because Joseph uh, was dreaming when he, so he wasn't going about his business and the angel appeared and he got terrified. He was asleep and the angel appeared in his dreams and the angel says to him, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. And then if you're going to flick forward, to Luke chapter 2, an angel appears to the shepherds. And you'll never guess what happens. The shepherds are in the field, they're watching their flocks, just kind of going about their business like they do every night, and all of a sudden an angel appears and they are terrified. And the angel says, do not be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. So we see the pattern, we know, yep, I want to be very clear that in each of those encounters, the first words, the first sentence out of the angel's mouth always contains, do not be afraid. And so when I say to you, hey, an angel is going to appear to Mary in this passage that we're going to talk about today, you probably would be expecting that Mary would be going about her her business and an angel would appear and she'd be afraid and the angel might say, hi, Mary, don't be afraid, I've got good news for you. That's actually not what happens. And this should be a clue to us, this is a little bit weird. Because what happens is, the angel appears and says to her, greetings, you who are highly favoured, the Lord is with you. And instead of being afraid, Mary is described as being greatly troubled. Isn't that an odd reaction? Uh, In my research, I went back to the Greek and I learned that that word that has been translated as greatly troubled could also be translated as agitated, agitated, sorry, disturbed, concerned. That's, that's just a bit odd, really. And it says that she's wondering, what kind of greeting is this? And to me, it almost feels like she's a bit suspicious. She's a little bit, who are you and what do you want from me? You know, she's kind of got her guard up. Now then the angel does go on and say, do not be afraid, and proceeds to tell her all of this information that is going to happen to her. But that initial reaction makes me wonder, what is going on here? And I thought to myself, well, maybe she doesn't recognize that it's an angel, right? We see in other parts of scripture, sometimes angels appear in human form, and and perhaps she doesn't realize that this is an angel. But even if she doesn't know it's an angel, if this is a human, This is just a strange man approaching her in a culture where she is not allowed to speak to men who she is not related to. Not even a morning as she walks past them in the street. And so whether it's he's appeared as an angel or as a human, either way, this reaction shows 
something about who she is. She's got a bit of a backbone, doesn't she? She's not going to... She's not, she's not going to have just anyone speaking to her, thank you very much. She recognises that it's not right for strangers to approach her. She's a little bit cautious. And then the angel tells her that God has chosen her to be the mother of the Messiah. And at this point, regardless of how the angel has appeared to her, it's probably clear that this is, in fact, an angel or some other divine being. But even then, she's a little bit defensive. Her reaction how can this be since I'm a virgin? Now, again, I'm going to give you a little Greek lesson. There is a Greek word that specifically, literally translates to virgin, and that is not the word that she uses here. That word is used in most of the other places in the Bible where it describes Mary as, in fact, I think possibly even all of the other parts of the Bible that describe Mary as a virgin, they use that Greek word. Here she doesn't say that. What she says is, How can this be, since I don't know any men? Now, in those days, to know someone was not just like, oh, yeah, I know you, yep, yep, I've met you, we know each other. Uh, That phrase, to know someone, could also be used probably in an equivalent way that we might today say they've slept with someone, right? So it means a sexual relationship. So when she says, I don't know any men, she's not saying, oh, I've never met any men, that's not possible. What she's saying is, whoa, hold on, I don't sleep with men. I don't sleep around. Right? It's defensive. It's... She, she lives in a culture where, as I said earlier, she's not allowed to speak to men. Unless you are married to or related to a man, you don't speak to them. And if you do, if you're caught speaking to a man, even just a quick good morning as you walk past them, that could be construed to mean all manner of things and it could ruin her entire life. It could ruin her reputation, Joseph could leave her, no one else is going to touch her and she'll be a burden on her parents forever. And so when a stranger comes and says to her, you're going to have a baby, immediate defense. I am not that kind of person. And again, I think we're seeing an interesting moment here and a hint of her real character. Um, Someone over here, maybe Alice said obedient. And I think she was obedient to God, but she wasn't blindly obedient. She's not just going to, oh, you stranger, come up and tell me I'm going to have a baby. Yeah, all right, great. She's going to check. I think it's really interesting that in this one chapter, Luke chapter 1, We have two people who meet an angel. The angel tells both of them some very unexpected news. Some might say some impossible news. And both of them ask a question of the angel. And they both get very different responses. Because what happens to Zechariah when he says, well, hold on, my wife is old. How is that possible? He's mute for at least nine months. Right? I don't know if Elizabeth got pregnant that same day. It might have been a little bit later. But until the baby's born... He doesn't get to say a word. In fact, longer, until the baby is named, he doesn't get to say a word. But when Mary asks a question, she gets an explanation. I think the difference is in the manner of the asking. Zechariah's question reveals his doubt. Mary's question reveals her dignity. It reveals her strength. And we see that because when she gets that explanation... 
And what are those words that she says? She says, I'm the Lord's servant. May your word, be fulf- may your word to me be fulfilled. Right? So yes, she's obedient to God, but she's not meek and mild. Once she knows that this is truly of God, she will do whatever God wants her to do. But she also is a woman who is going to stand up for what is right. And there are three things I think we see from Mary here. She, she stands up for what is right. She's also willing to do whatever God asks of her, whatever God calls her to, even if it hurts her. Because let's be honest, no one in Nazareth is going to believe that this baby has come from the Holy Spirit. If she's pregnant, it's because she's been sleeping around. Joseph has chosen to marry her, so obviously she's been sleeping with him. So this is not the Holy Spirit, right? That's what they're all going to think. And number three, she has a deep, deep faith. Because to be able to accept a calling like that from God in the situation and the culture that she was in requires enormous faith. And so already, I think we can start to see why Mary might be one of my favorite characters. And when I say characters, I mean people, real historical people. But then, something else happens. Now we know that after this, Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. We talked about that last week. She goes to visit Elizabeth. Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesies, and that's already incredible. But then Mary has her response to that. And this is good, right? This, I think, is one of the best speeches of all time. Certainly one of the most quoted, because it gets recited in a lot of churches every year. Um, When you think of famous speeches, you might think of Winston Churchill or Martin Luther King, but I reckon Mary, I think she tops both of them. I'm going to read it to you, and then we're going to talk about um, some cultural stuff and why that's important. So she says... My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. Oh, sorry, empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. It's pretty powerful, isn't it? And it's even more powerful when we remember that this is coming from a girl who was roughly 14 years old. A girl who was uneducated for two reasons. First, because women were not given access to education. And second, because even if she could have somehow got access to education, she was completely impoverished and would not have been able to afford it. She shows in this speech a deep understanding of Israelite history and theology, an understanding that many rabbis should be impressed with. She has no business knowing any of this stuff. And I think sometimes we write this off and we say, oh, it was, it's a prophecy and it's from the Holy Spirit and none of it is of her. Some of it is her. 
Why is this important? Surely it doesn't hurt anyone if we just continue on believing this version of Mary, right? This radiant, always looking down, submissive, quiet woman. It's not going to do any damage if we keep believing in that, right? Maybe not to you. Mary is a real person. We do her a great disservice by not understanding who she was and why she was that way. She's one of the most significant figures in Christian history, and it's essential that we understand that. Because this image that we have of Mary, that we see in all those medieval paintings, it's complete fiction. It's been fabricated by artists who in those days were men, uh, and it's unfortunately at different times in church history been used to keep women down, to keep women in their place, be meek and mild and submissive like Mary. I don't see Mary being many of those things very often. So telling me to be like Mary might be a dangerous thing. If you look, the other thing about this image is it's very Western. I don't know if you have looked closely at those medieval paintings of Mary. I nearly put some up on the screen to show you, but I decided against it. But she's white. In all the paintings, she's white. Mary was not a white woman. Jesus was not a white man. This is a very Western idea of who we think Mary should have been and not who Mary actually was. And if you start to look at non-Western Christianity and how Mary is viewed in South American, Asian, African and Eastern Orthodox cultures, you're going to see a very different person. And I think it's really important that we learn from them. Before you think I might just be spouting some opinions that I've got from who knows where, I'm going to step back. We're going to talk about the culture of the time because this is where we get the answers as to why Mary was the way that she was. We are all products of our environment. We've all been brought up within specific cultures and even specific subsets of those cultures. And they have an enormous influence on who we are. And we don't realize that until we step outside of them. If you've ever lived overseas for a, a period of time, then you'll know how much a product of your upbringing you really are. And Mary's the same. So let's have a look. And I would like to extend my thanks to the Roman Empire for their excellent record keeping, because it's thanks to them that we know a lot of this stuff, and of course to archaeologists as well. About 60 years before Jesus' birth, the Roman Empire thought to themselves, you know what? I want Israel. Let's get Israel. And so they went and they took over Jerusalem and Judea, and they gradually just kind of worked their way out from there until they had taken all of Israel. It got a bit messy, some people died, but they won. So for them, it's okay. And about 20 years after that, so we're 40 years of, uh, before Jesus' birth, the Roman Senate declared Herod the Great King of the Jews. Now, it's really important we understand that the Roman Senate decided that he could be the king there. He is what is known in kind of scholarly circles as a client king because he was the king and he had the power over the Jews, but he was a client of Rome. They had the power over him. And so we know that Herod remained king until a couple of years after Jesus' birth. And we know that he wasn't a great guy. 
And maybe your first clue to that is when you're reading in the Bible the bit about how he's like, there might be another king, so we'll kill all the babies. That's a hint. He didn't do great by the Jews. And so we're in this situation where we've got kind of a double layer of oppression. You've got the Jews down here on the ground and you've got Herod and he's exerting pressure on the Jews because he thinks that he should have all the power because he's the king. And then you've got Rome pushing down on Herod. Don't get too uppity. We put you there. You belong to us, right? So we've got this dual layer of oppression over the Jews. And if you've read much of the Bible, you'll know that the Jewish people they have a certain attitude about that. They don't like being taken over. You want to take us into exile? That's fine. We're going to still try and live as Jews as best we can, right? We're going to do our Jewish thing and you're going to have to deal with that. You can take over, but we're going to still be Jews. We're not going to be Romans. We're not going to be Babylonians. We're not going to be Assyrians. We're going to be Jews. We're God's people. And so some of the Jews, and we see that uh, it, particularly in tax collectors in the Bible, that you know they try to get on the Romans' good side. They're like, hey guys, we'll help you out. We'll be tax collectors. We'll take a little bit for ourselves, a little bit for you. It'll be great for all of us, right? Well, we all know that people didn't really like those people. Most of the Jews didn't love this situation. And particularly in some of the more remote areas, say, I don't know, like way up north in Galilee, maybe. Um, there were some people who were trying to work against the Roman Empire. And in fact, a while after Jesus' time, there was an uprising and the Jews rose up against the Romans. And, and that, I think, shows us a bit about, like, they'd been feeling this, this stuff for so long, they finally just had to let it out. And so, all of this to say, there's a lot of tension in all of Israel, but particularly around uh, the more remote parts where they really just don't like the Romans, or Herod for that matter. And so we think, as I said earlier, Mary was about 14 when Jesus was born, which means that she's grown up under this regime. She has never, ever known a period of freedom in Israel. She has probably grown up hearing her parents whispering to each other under their breaths nasty comments about Rome or about Herod. It's likely that she knew people, that she had friends and neighbours who were actively working against Rome, who were engaged in political subterfuge against Rome. In fact, there's even evidence that there was a Roman garrison stationed in Nazareth around that time, which suggests that Mary might have had lived experience of oppressive Roman regime. She's had soldiers walking down the streets. She watches people kind of do this as a soldier walks past. She's seen and experienced all of it. And her speech reflects that. Because amidst all of the Roman violence and authoritarianism, amidst Herod's weird power plays, and amidst the Jewish acts of rebellion, God has chosen her to do something extraordinary and something terrified, terrifying. 
So when she talks about how God has chosen her despite her low position in society, and remember we talked last week about how women really had a low position in society, and she wasn't even married yet. She was betrothed, but not yet married. She was in the process of being traded by her parents for goods. She points out that everyone is going to know how God has blessed her. And these words are deeply personal and they're deeply political. She's speaking prophetically about herself and other people, but there are wider implications for her speech. She says, all generations will call me blessed. And we do. There are several generations represented in here, in this room now. And when I said to you all, what do we know about Mary? Someone said, blessed. That's a prophecy, right? And if you look at the history of the church in different places and in different times, people of all generations in different places throughout history have indeed called her blessed and it must be wild to her that people in the 21st century in some place that didn't even exist back then are still here and are calling her blessed. Mary speaks the truth of her situation and in doing so, she recognises the implications of that for her and her people and implicitly for other people in similar circumstances. God will indeed, in Mary's words, scatter those uh, who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He does indeed bring down rulers from their thrones and lifts up the humble. He prepares lavish feasts for the hungry, for the impoverished, and he sends the rich away with empty stomachs. And he does not forget his people and the promises that he made to them. And we have mountains and mountains of evidence for that all throughout here. It doesn't take much reading to find an example of God remembering his people and keeping his promises to them. And he does it over and over again. So when we consider the political climate of that day, these words hold real power and real meaning. It's no wonder then that these words of Mary's have been adopted by people all over the world all throughout history who have lived under similarly oppressive regimes. And if I went to certain other countries today and asked that same question, what do you think of Mary? What do you know about her? What do you think about who she was as a person? Their answers would probably not be the same as some of your answers. You see, in three countries at different points in history, these words of Mary's have actually been banned Okay, in India, when it was under British rule, Mary's words were banned from being sung in the church. They're dangerous words, we don't want the people hearing those. In Guatemala in the 80s, the communist regime realized that these words were inspiring hope for change in the nation's poor farmers. And they went, this isn't good. We're banning public recitation of these words. And in Guatemala, under the military, sorry, in Argentina, under the military dictatorship of the 70s and 80s, 
where people were disappearing in military vans without a trace. The mothers of disappeared people, of disappeared children, put these words on posters and hung them throughout the capital. After which the military dictatorship immediately banned any speaking, singing or writing of these words. Why? Because Mary's words hold power. These words are the essence of who God is and what he does for his people. And if you are a military dictator, these words would have you shaking in your boots, and they should. Mary's words bring hope to the hopeless, bring light in dark places. You and I are in a position of great privilege. We are so blessed to not ever have lived under regimes like this, to have the freedom to live each day without fear of soldiers coming to your house and taking people that you love. I don't know that we will ever truly understand the freedom from oppression that Jesus can bring in the way that Mary understood it and in the way that people in places like Guatemala, India, Argentina, but also Ukraine, Russia, North Korea, China, Libya, Sudan, Yemen, Somalia do. Believers in those places have lived understanding of the way that Jesus protects his people. That upside-down kingdom that we talked about last week, they get it. And while I hope that I'm never in a situation like that, there is something about that understanding that I go, I kind of wish I got it, you know? Um, but I don't think I ever will. We live an incredibly safe and privileged life in Australia. And I think we have to be really careful to not sink into a place where we're just kind of happily going along with that. We're not truly trying to understand what it is Jesus does when he flips things on their heads. We want to make sure that we're on the right side of that flipping, on the right side of the upside-down kingdom. Now, of course, Mary's words are not just for those who are living under oppressive political regimes. We can all learn from Mary's example. As we said earlier, three things. She had a really deep faith that we should all aspire to. That level of faith that says, yeah, I'll do that, God, even though it'll probably ruin my life. She stood up for what was right. She's not afraid to say these words in the presence of Elizabeth. Right? Homes in those days, not very private. Her saying those words, she wasn't whispering them to someone who she was 100% certain she could trust. She was just saying them. Anyone could have walked past and heard. Those words could have landed her in a lot of trouble, but she still spoke them. Mary stood up for what was right. And when we see injustices here in this place and in other parts of the world, does not Jesus call us too to speak up against those things? And number three, Mary did what she was called to do even when it was hard, even when it was not going to help her in any way socially or politically. She chose 
to have a baby, and she did choose, right? She says at the end, I am the Lord's servant, may your word to me be fulfilled. She consented to this. And you know, she continued throughout her life to do the things she was called to do, even when it was hard, right? Because we know that she was there when Jesus died. I don't think that's easy, watching your firstborn son be executed for crimes he didn't commit, but she was there. And we know that Mary continually did the things that God called her to do, even when it was hard, even when it might not have benefited her or might even have caused her pain or harm. And I don't think... Hmm, no, rephrase that. I was going to say I don't think we would do that. I think we all think we would do that. I don't know that all of us would. When the time comes and an angel is standing in front of you saying, do this, it's going to really hurt, I wonder how many of us would have the faith and the courage to say, may your word to me be fulfilled. And so my prayer for all of us is that we can be more like Mary. And I know we talk a lot about biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. If you want a good example of biblical womanhood, let's look at Mary. And so my prayer for all of us is that we can all find ways to be more like her, to learn from her example, to grow and deepen our faith, to stand up for what is right, and to do the things that God calls us into, even when it hurts. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we love you, and we are so grateful to you for who you are and for the way that you see us, for the way that you see the people of this world, and Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes so that we too can see others the way that you see them. And Lord, we know that you are a God who does not value the same things that we value. And so we ask, Lord, that you would help us to value the things that you value. Lord, as we look at Mary, I ask that you would deepen all of our faith, that we too might have a faith like her. And Lord, as we look out at the world and we see injustice, we see poverty, we see pain, we see violence, Lord, I ask that you would break our hearts for that, And that you would help us to speak up, to speak out against injustice in any way that we can, Lord. I ask that you would help us to step into the things that you are calling us into, even when it hurts, even when it scares us, Lord. I ask that you would help us to be more like Mary, and Lord, that in being more like Mary, we would become more like you.